God's Word for today is from Acts in chapter 10. It's a story of a delegation of men coming from a military man named Cornelius to visit Peter. Here's the story, beginning at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. I'm just going to spill the beans and say it outright in the very first sentence of the message today. And it's plain, and it's simple, and it's clear. Deal with it. You cannot be a Christian and a racist. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and judge people based on your personal preferences and life experience and worldview. You cannot pray with a heart that is poisoned with prejudice. As a white, middle-aged American man, just by virtue of that position itself, I hold superior privileges and rights to other classes and people and, and races in our world simply because of that, based on nothing that I've done to deserve it. And it's so easy to exploit that, that I oftentimes don't see myself doing it. If I condemn people who want to use terms like white privilege and black lives matter, if I'm honest with myself, I'm condemning the very command of my Savior Jesus to love everybody and be kind, and be gentle, and understanding. If I want to condemn refugees and immigrants from wanting to chase the American dream, the American dream of which I am a part, 
I have to understand that I'm condemning my own ancestors who were at once immigrants too. How do you, how do you balance innocent and pure and righteous cultural bias and then there's, there's this fine line between that and being a bigoted, selfish, unloving racist. If, if you navigate those waters very comfortably and you feel that you've arrived, I want to make you uncomfortable today. And if you're uncomfortable in those waters, navigating that, and, and it hurts your conscience, and you're not sure if you're doing it right, then I want to make you comfortable today and preach God's gospel to you and to all of us. Yesterday, um, I was taking a friend around town, and we were touring Austin, and, and I experienced four cross-cultural experiences with four different colors of people. And I, I reflected on those after the day was over and getting the sermon ready for today, and it's really interesting how it plays out as I let it speak to my heart and, and think about those. There was, uh, see if I can get them here, there was, I went into a convenience store, and it was a franchise store owned by an Indian family, and when I opened the door, the heavy smell of mothballs and curry hit me like a wall. Uh, I was at a tourist site in Austin, and there was a group of black teenagers, and, and, the, and the boys, the teenage boys, all had uh, high-definition cameras with, with tripods. Uh, I knocked on the door of a complete stranger. Uh, my white friend and I knocked on this door uh, in Austin, and, and a young Mexican man answered, and uh, he... he he was uncomfortable. He didn't want to let us in. We, we were there to take a look at this house, and, uh, and, he, and he didn't let us in. And a, uh, an Asian teenager served me uh, Torchy's tacos, and I couldn't understand a lick of what he said I didn't, when he asked whose tacos were whose, and I was all confused. In every one of those circumstances, the natural thoughts and inclinations that came to me as I look back on them were wrong. And not just inaccurate, but immoral and impure. And if you want to call it racist, because I made judgments about all four of those individuals and groups and their color and, and their ethnic groups, I made judgments about them based on my white, American, male, middle-aged, privileged status. And I couldn't help it. It was just, it was there. How do I deal with myself? How can I, as a pastor of this church, say we should be a church of diversity and we should welcome people of all races and shapes and sizes when I can't even deal with that myself? And how can you navigate those waters? How can I encourage you, if you feel like you've nailed it, to understand that you probably have not? And if you're struggling with it, to understand that, that you 
have the grace and guidance of God who believes in you. And that you can be a person who, who accepts diversity and promotes it too. Uh, what is God's own dream for diversity in my heart and in my church and in my community? And how do I align myself to that? How can I change? There was a man in the 1960s who sought to make that change. Not just in his own heart, but in the community, in our society. He was a civil rights leader. Kids, pay attention to here. If you have your message notes, your clipboard, I want you to write on that who I'm talking about. And if, if you need some help, talk to mom and dad. Because a civil rights leader in the 1960s promoted the idea, the concept, the dynamic, the promise of the American creed of the American Constitution, that all people are created equal and have rights. And that the dream that he had was opposed and despised and fought against. And he had to teach parents and teachers to teach in the 1960s black elementary school and middle school children how to, how to deal with mobs that were incited with rage and hate and how to block a police baton with their forearm because it's better to break an arm than get a fractured skull. And it was because of his dream. Dreams push you forward to... to make a difference. They push you forward to an area of change that might not be comfortable for you, and they also help you deal with the suffering and the opposition and the resistance that's going to come your way because of it and be even stronger for it. And he was strong. And he was jailed, and he was tortured, and he was spit on and eventually killed. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The worst pain of all had to be this, that members of his own Southern Baptist Convention, that Christian brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters in God's family resisted him too. There's stories you can read about churches in the 1960s that were so segregated that they locked the doors so that African Americans could not attend. There's been public apologies and public repentance by those churches since then. From the heart, meaningful, godly. So it makes me wonder, what am I doing today as a pastor and what are we doing as Christians and as a church community that 20 years from now we're going to look back to and we're going to repent? And how about if we change that now? How do we change? Let's be real. Why is a church so segregated? Why, why does my own church denomination under the guise of we can't change doctrine, refuse to change things that aren't doctrine, and that turn people of other cultures away from, from my church denomination. Why? 
Why do we use, we use a word like common table prayer as if it's common to everyone and it's only those who are in the club who know what common is and yet we insist it is and it's not. Why do I go to uh, the closest elementary school to this church right up the road and I drive by during recess and I see that 50% of the kids are white, 20% are Hispanic, 20% are black, and 10% are Asian. And I look at this church and it's 90% white Europeans with a few others mixed in. And right now the rest of you are going, who are those others? Where, what are they doing here? Where are those outsiders? Why is that and what do we do about it? Do, do, we, do we need to say to those who, who aren't here, who aren't reflected in our church's makeup, do we need to say to them, you know, if you would just change a little bit, then you would fit right in. Is that the answer? Do we just expect everyone else who's not like us to become like us? After I reflected on my heart after yesterday, I don't know if I want people to be like me. And then what would happen? We would just have a bunch of plain non-colored M&Ms? Or do I need to change? Think how powerful it would be if I changed my attitude and my approach. And all of us did. In our world, in our community, in our church, in our own hearts, became what God's dream and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream and Peter's dream, see them to be. I believe in that, and I hope you do too. And so we're going to start here. There's this book on my shelf that paraphrases C.S. Lewis and helps us answer that question, and it says this. There's someone I love, even though I don't approve of what he does. There's someone I accept, though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive, though he hurts the people I love the most, that person is me. Do you know the person that we forgive more than anyone else? Ourselves. Do you know the person that you're patient with more than anyone else? Yourself. The person that you show mercy to more than anyone else? The person that you understand more than anyone else? Yourself. Not, that's just, that's who we are. Not necessarily wrong, except when I don't extend the same privileges to others. So you see, lack of diversity and sinful segregation is not a cultural issue at all. It's not a political issue at all. It's not a modern contemporary issue. It's not an ancient issue. It's not an American issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a problem with my heart, the brown chocolate M&M that's on the inside. I'm the problem. 
So I'm thinking about this yesterday, and I'm at the Austin tourist site, and, and there's this group of black teenagers, and I'm walking behind them, and there's a young black lady walking in front of me, and I notice her hair, and a white middle-aged American male would never wear hair like she had, but her hair was really cool. It was braided in some real neat ways and kind of cornrowed, I think that's what it's called, and had some different colors. And I, I just couldn't help it. I said to her, I really like your hair. And know what I thought as I said that? How honored she must, she must feel really good today now. How honored she must feel that a white, middle-aged American man, superior in status to her, has now complimented her on her hair. I bet this just made her day. How do I deal with myself? How do we navigate those waters? I, I was trying. And even when I tried, I couldn't get it right. The Apostle Peter loved himself too much. Like me, I love being a white, middle-aged American male, but I love it too much. The Apostle Peter loved his Jewishness. The Apostle Peter loved being one of the twelve, and not just one of the twelve, right? The Apostle Peter loved being one of the three, the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. And the Apostle Peter, he felt he was superior to the rest of the disciples. The Apostle Peter became indignant with children and parents when the parents were bringing their children to Jesus. Remember this? And he was trying to shoo them away. The Apostle Peter, in his disciple days, became in, uh, impatient with women who wanted Jesus to heal them, to listen to them, to speak to them. Like me, Peter loved himself too much. So much, actually, that he denied the very Savior who loved him. No wonder Jesus later asked, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus, Jesus loved Peter more than he deserved. Jesus loved Peter. He, Jesus changed for Peter. You, you could say, in a sense, Jesus changed his culture. He, did, he didn't change his divinity. He, Jesus was always God and remained God, even when he became human. But, but he became part of a culture that wasn't his, his culture from eternity. He took on human flesh. And, and Jesus became... He became like Peter. He assimilated Peter's culture. He became, well, not a white, a Jewish, almost middle-aged, Nazarene man. He learned what it was to have sweaty armpits and to have stinky breath and to live in a real world that was not, a, not divine like heaven was. And Jesus loved Peter and everyone else who couldn't ad adopt or adapt to a culture outside of their own. And Jesus said, I'll, I'll do that for you, Peter. And after he asked him, do you love me, three times, remember, after those times, what he also told Peter? Feed my sheep. 
the smart ones and the not-so-smart ones, the sleek ones and the spotted ones, the sick ones, the little ones and the leader ones. Peter, they're all, they're all sheep, and whose sheep are they? Jesus' sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. All different shapes and sizes and colors. Feed my sheep. Because, kids, who does Jesus love? Everybody. Jesus loves everybody. So, the, the, the main thrust of this, this vision that Peter has that God sent him to, to interact with Cornelius, a Gentile, has some history behind it. Back in the Old Testament days, in ancient times, God developed uh, his people, Israel, by giving them specific dietary laws, among other laws, church laws, societal laws, and, uh, and these laws about what they could eat and not eat, and there were animals that were considered unclean and impu- impure, including pork. And so uh, God gave these laws to the Israelites. Then when Jesus came, he established a really a new identity for God's people, and no longer was the identity attached to this, these transactional laws or keeping religious rules. But Jesus actually turned some of those rules upside down. Remember, Jesus broke the Sabbath on multiple occasions intentionally because he's saying your identity now as God's people is not transactional. It's not related to rules. It's, it's a relationship. It's transformational. It's not based on keeping dietary rules. It's based on, on God's love for you, on sending his son for you. And so he gave them a new grown-up identity, the Israelites. So, that's the background for these words. As, uh, as God gives them to Peter, and Peter sees these animals, and, and in, the, in the vision, God says, I want you to eat them. No, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, and even a third time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter could eat of anything in there in this vision, including pigs, because it was no longer impure or unclean. Because the pure one, the innocent one, the clean and holy one, Jesus, took on the ultimate impurity and uncleanness by coming to save Peter from himself, from his love of himself that loved himself too much, from his blindness to other people's need. There is no longer any impurity or uncleanness, God is saying, in God's world because Jesus made it all pure, made it all clean, and forgave us all, forgave Peter even more than 77 times, and forgives us too, and puts in my heart a righteous, new, pure, and clean attitude and approach to those who are different from me that I can practice just like Jesus practiced for Peter. Peter, no, you don't need clean, kosher food in order to be right with God, and we don't either. And Peter, you don't need to behave perfectly in a pure way to be right with God in a transactional, rule-keeping way either because that's what Jesus did, and he did it for you. And for me. That's the gospel when it comes to diversity, and I need that gospel, and you do too, and, and, and our church does. Uh, 
So what does it look like to be a church that dreams of, of diversity and doesn't fear it? What does it look like to be a church that considers those who are unlike us, not from a perspective of fear of how they're going to ruin us, fear of how they're going to force change upon us that we can't afford to make, fear that, that they'll come and, and, and we won't be the owners of our church anymore as if we are, because this is Jesus' church, not ours. What does that look like to be a church of diversity that's not afraid of it? Number one, it looks like this, that we are a church family. And when we say family, we mean all the brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. And there's crazy Uncle Larry. And there's brothers too that we haven't got along with for a while. And there's white brothers and sisters, and there's black brothers and sisters, and there's Asian brothers and sisters, and there's Hispanic brothers and sisters, and there's old and there's young, and we're a family. Why? Because we're all brown on the inside. We're all loved by God on the inside, and that's what unites us, and that's what makes us family. Number two, being a church of diversity and offering a school of diversity. That's for children of all shapes and sizes and colors, but not just culturally, also economically. Of welcoming into our ministry those who need to pay for tuition of a school but can't afford it by a robust financial aid package that we will form according to our school business plan. So that others who aren't like us, maybe in skin color, maybe in class, maybe in income, can be like us on the inside, loved by Jesus, taught by His Word in the ministry that we create, Cross Life Christian Academy. Thirdly, how can we be a church that, that has a future of diversity and not a fear of it? We can be radically committed to reaching new people outside the faith, outside our church, who have no idea what faith in Jesus is like and no idea of how church people behave. And we love them. And we're going to go find them. And we're going to bring them here. And we may just need to accommodate them in some way without changing God's word or doctrinal beliefs, accommodate them so we see more of them. And, and the door is open for them and they feel welcomed here. And we engage in aggressive open, wide funnel outreach that reaches more and more people and fills these seats and fills this parking lot and fills people's hearts with Jesus' love. And then we say, we're a family. Welcome to the family. Because we are the family of God, a family of believers. I love this statement it's my favorite one in the whole section here where, uh, where the men from Cornelius come to Peter and, and Peter says this. This is, this is my favorite statement of the whole thing. Peter says, I'm the one you're looking for. He said that to these men. He didn't allow them to initiate the conversation. He didn't allow them to ask a question. He went down because God told him to and he, didn't let, he said, I'm here. I'm the one you're looking for. And what were they looking for? They were looking for, on, the, on behalf of Cornelius, they were looking for acceptance they were looking for welcome into the family of God. 
They were looking for what only the Jews had. And through Peter, God promised them, you have it too. Jesus says the same thing to you. Without you activating anything, without you needing to ask the right questions or behave in any kind of way, Jesus comes to you and he says, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm here. You're looking for acceptance. You're looking for love. You're looking to get in, to to be close to God. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm here. And then you and I say that to others. We say it to young African-American girls with, with cute hair. And we say it to Hispanic families in our community, and we say it to low-income families and, and the underprivileged, and, and we say it to them not because we're superior, but because we are their servants, and we love them, and Jesus loves them too. We say, we're, I'm here. I'm here. I have what you're looking for. Our church has what you're looking for. I'm here. I'm the one. And then guess what's going to happen? Here's what happens. When we approach diversity with an open heart and with love, and and the way Jesus wants us to, when we do that, here's what happens. Then they are the ones who end up saying that to us. People of other cultures and colors and, and unlike us end up saying to us, we're the ones you're looking for. And they end up bringing culturally and economically and in a beautiful, diverse way gifts and blessings to us that we never realized we were missing. And we become this great big potluck, multiple-colored family of God. Got a family? Need a family? Join our family. Welcome to the family. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are so great. In your power and in your might, and in your love and in your mercy. You are so great in, in the depth of your, your truth and your love, in the height of your glory, and in the width of who you accept in your kingdom, your family, as believers. Thank you for including us. We weren't originally in, and you sent Jesus to bring us in. You grafted us into the vine. God, help us now do that same thing with others. Help us to be agents of change in our community and in our, in our church, in our own homes and in our own heart. Open our eyes, open our hearts to be diverse, to be kind and loving and understanding of others who aren't like us so that all of us come together and in a like-minded, like-hearted way because you bless us on the inside with unity to be your family and for others to see it and to come to us too. In the name of your Son, our brother, Jesus Christ, amen.